Tonight we pick it up in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 20. Last week we came about 15 or 16 verses into the chapter. And I do just want to give a little bit of review of the first part of that chapter because to, to me it's so fascinating. It's the response of Jesus to Peter and his question, what reward shall we have? You know, the rich young ruler came to Jesus and asked him what he must do to inherit eternal life. And since his focus was on doing and inheriting eternal life, Jesus focused him on what he had to do. He had to keep the law in its entirety, both in its application on a horizontal level, that is the relationship that he has with other people, but also on a vertical level, the relationship that he has with God himself. And Jesus specifically challenged him on this aspect of his relationship to God because Jesus commanded the man to leave everything he had, to to sell it all, to give the money to the poor, and to then follow Jesus. Well, the man was unwilling to do this. And, And sort of the point of the story, as far as Peter and the disciples were concerned, was that they were willing to do what the rich young ruler was not willing to do. They had, in effect, left everything and followed Jesus. Of course, as we observed last week, they had a lot less to give up than the rich young ruler. So in some ways, it was not quite the same sacrifice for them. Nevertheless, it was something notable. And Peter, as well as the other disciples, they wanted to know, what kind of reward will we have? Well, Jesus assured them that they would have a reward. But then he gave this very interesting and somewhat mysterious statement that Many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. And what Jesus meant by that, he explained in the parable that begins at Matthew chapter 20. That the parable simply explains that God's rewarding is according to grace. Now, you won't find the word grace in this parable or in Jesus' explanation of it, but, but the principle is of grace. That the principle being of this, that God rewards out of his own pleasure, and not necessarily according to human expectation. That that God will never be less than fair with the people that he rewards, but he may be more than fair. If God wants to reward a person more than they deserve, it's totally up to him to do it. Because God's rewarding is not based on the principle of what a man deserves. Instead, it's based on the principle of what he wants to give. And that's why in verse 16 of Matthew chapter 20, Jesus gives this statement, So the last will be first, and the first last, for many are called, but few are chosen. That the basic idea would be this, Hey, disciples, you should expect to be rewarded for what you do for me, for all you've given up. You will be rewarded, but, disciples, and this is what I want you to hear, You will not be rewarded according to the expectation that human beings necessarily have. There will be surprises when it comes to God's rewarding because it's done on the principle of grace and not on the principle of strict works or law. Now, this sort of makes a nice transition into the subject that Jesus will speak about starting at verse 17 and for the rest of the chapter where Jesus is going to speak about status in his kingdom. But before he talks about status, Jesus is going to talk about sacrifice. Verse 17, now Jesus going up to Jerusalem, now we should maybe just pause right there in those first few words of verse 17. First of all, you notice, and I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but it's something that's good for us to familiarize with. 
The Bible always speaks of going up to Jerusalem. Why? Well, for two reasons. First of all, because geographically, Jerusalem is a city situated in, you'd either say high hills or low mountains. So you go up to Jerusalem. But secondly, conceptually, right? Jerusalem is an exalted place in the mind of a first century Jew, in the mind of a present day Jew as well, but it's an exalted place. And so the concept is you're going up to Jerusalem. So as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, but what was he going up there for? We remind ourselves, this was the last trip of Jesus to Jerusalem. Matter of fact, the next time we're together, when we start in Matthew chapter 21, it's going to be the triumphal entry, and it's going to be one week before the crucifixion of Jesus. We're coming up into the last week. This is the home stretch. Jesus is almost finished with his earthly ministry. He's going up to Jerusalem. He took the 12 disciples aside on the road. By the way, that's very interesting too. Why would he need to take them aside on the road? Because what festival is near this time? You may very well know that Jesus was crucified right around the Passover festival. And what happened at Passover festival? Well, thousands, no, tens of thousands of Jewish pilgrims and travelers came into the city of Jerusalem from afar off. And they came and gathered here, and they were all there at the city. So there are tens of thousands of pilgrims traveling along the road to Jerusalem at this time. So you can imagine, they're, they're walking in the midst of a lot of people. Oh, you shouldn't think of, you know, a thousand people walking all at once in one big group. But there's a lot of travelers on this road. And Jesus takes his disciples aside on the road and says to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify, and the third day he will rise again. Now, I trust you've been paying attention as we've been making our way through the Gospel of Matthew, and you know that this is not the first time that Jesus has predicted his death and resurrection to the disciples. However, He has never expressed it so specifically up to this point. He says very plainly, step by step, what will happen to him when he gets to Jerusalem. And yet, nevertheless, he says in verse 18, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. Now, the disciples knew they were going up to Jerusalem. They knew it was Passover time. They knew this was the destination. But yet, Jesus tells them in verse 18, what will await him when they get there? He said, the Son of Man will be betrayed. Jesus was telling the disciples, what waited for him in Jerusalem, but there is no reaction from the disciples noted. Look at it in verse 19. Look at it in verse 20. We don't have any expression saying, and the disciples were shocked at such a saying and said, Lord, tell us what thou meanest. There was nothing like that. There's no reaction noted from the disciples. I would expect especially that they would react when Jesus said that he would be betrayed. And in the Gospel of Matthew, this is the first time that this is mentioned. Now notice this. Jesus is talking there with his disciples, the 12, when he says he would be betrayed. You know, you're betrayed by somebody close to you. Right away, wouldn't you have thought, 
that one of them would have thought, well, Jesus, who is going to betray you? Jesus, we know you have enemies, but a man isn't betrayed by his enemies. He's betrayed by his friends. And Jesus, who among your friends, who among your followers would be such a one to betray you? Seemingly, the disciples did not really listen when Jesus said these things. I believe, and again, this is speculation, right? Because we're not specifically told by the text. But I believe that their expectation was so focused on Jesus establishing an immediate political kingdom that these words from Jesus were so contrary to that anticipation that the words just went right over their head. You know when your expectation is just a certain way and somebody tells you that it's going to be different, you don't even hear them, right? It's just like they may as well not even say, you don't even hear them because they're not words that you want to hear and they're not words that you're expecting to hear. And I believe that in the general mentality of the disciples, they thought that Jesus was going into Jerusalem to take possession of his kingdom. They thought that they were approaching the moment of their glorification, of their greatest success, of their rise to power. They were thinking about their great status and income and authority and office that awaited for them in Jerusalem. And they were so fixated on this general way of thinking that they didn't even really understand or comprehend when Jesus said these radical things. By the way, it is a shocking thing when we think about it that Jesus knew when he announced that he would be betrayed. Charles Spurgeon said a very striking thing in a message on this very passage. He talked about how Jesus is still betrayed. He says this. It's a strong statement, but I don't mind reading it to you. He says, and still he is betrayed. If the gospel dies in England, right on its tomb, betrayed. If our churches lose their holy influence among men, right on them, betrayed. What care we for infidels? What care for we for those who curse and blaspheme? They cannot hurt the Christ. His wounds are those which he receives in the house of his friends. And such a faithful friend is he, so full of love and yet betrayed. It's not right, is it? It's not right that Jesus, who was so faithful, so good, so providing to the disciples, that he would be betrayed. It's not right that the other disciples did not rise up and defend him at this moment. Jesus, tell us who it is who would betray you, and we will cast him out of our midst. But they did not do this. And I also find it interesting another perspective that people have as to why this didn't register with with the disciples. Some people think that when Jesus told the 12 disciples that he would die, they thought that maybe it was a parable. And you can see why they might think that, right? Jesus was occasionally saying parables that had to do with life or death or farming or business. Or this, and maybe thought, oh, there he goes on one of his parables again. Yes, Jesus, you're going to die spiritually. We all have to be crucified spiritually. Okay, Jesus, we understand this. But yes, they, they, they tried to make something spiritual when Jesus was speaking very, very directly. One other thing I want you to understand. Verses 18 and 19. Jesus reveals to us, and to his disciples, of course, that he knows exactly what is waiting for him 
in Jerusalem, right? Let me read it to you one more time. And the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify, and the third day he will rise again. Do you understand that it's often more agonizing to think about the painful future than it actually is to live it. You you know this, right, from when you were a child or when you had children. And they have to go in to get a shot, right, some kind of immunization or a helpful shot or something like that. You know that the shot itself is a very little pain. But the stress, the agony, the fear, the anticipation that goes in before the shot, that's more torturous than the shot itself. And in a way, how much better, how much easier it would have been for Jesus if all this stuff about the betrayal and the crucifixion and the punishment he endured, if it all would have been a surprise, right? Whoa, I didn't know, I just, it just happened. But to know it's coming, to contemplate it, to think about it, to have it stare you straight in the face for months and years ahead of time, that takes a special kind of courage, doesn't it? To know what this future is. Jesus thought about this, but yet he thought even more about how he would fulfill the will of his father in the future. I think that there was great value for Jesus to look at his coming trial and instead of saying, okay, I'm just not going to think about it, right? Isn't that what our tendency is? That's what I often do. (laughs) This is terrible test. I just won't think about it. No, instead, Jesus, Jesus said, I am going to think about it and I will complete what my Father has given me to do. I will obey until the end. What a test it was for him to meet. Can I go over that again for you in verses 18 and 19? Betrayed, they will condemn him to death. They will deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. And the third day he will rise again. I want you to notice how remarkably specific Jesus was in this announcement of his fate. And he foretold many things over which he had no apparent control. If a man says, okay, I'll tell you what's going to happen tomorrow. All right. I'm going to drive to this city and I'm going to go into this business and I'm going to do this. Well, shit, fine. You have control over all that, right? But if you say things about your future that other people will do to you things over which you have no control, then it's going to be proven very soon whether or not you're a prophet or whether or not you're a false prophet. Jesus said that he will be betrayed. You know, conceivably, Jesus could have been delivered to the religious authorities without being betrayed. Certainly, Jesus did not arrange his own betrayal, yet he confidently said that it would happen. And then Jesus noted that the religious authorities would condemn him to death. Specifically, the chief priests and the scribes would. Jesus confidently predicted that the religious leaders would do this, yet this was not something he could plan. Could Jesus plan on having... Did Jesus go to the religious leaders and ask them to condemn him to death? No, but he knew that it would happen. And he also knew that they would deliver him to the Gentiles. Now, Jesus knew that the religious leaders of the Jews did not have the authority to carry out capital punishment themselves. Yet sometimes they executed men despite this prohibition. 
Do you want an example of this? How about in Acts chapter 7, when they killed Stephen, right? They weren't supposed to do that. He was the first martyr of the church. The, the, the Jews did not have the authority of capital punishment, but sometimes they ignored that prohibition from the Roman government, and they did it anyway. How did Jesus know that they wouldn't just do that to him? How did he know that they would deliver him to the Romans instead of taking the law into their own hands and killing him? Yet Jesus was confident that he would be delivered to the Gentiles, and then to do what? Look at it there, to mock and to scourge. Jesus predicted these specific aspects of his coming agony, which on a human level, he could not arrange. And then to crucify. May I remind you that crucifixion was not the only way that criminals were executed under the Romans. I think of how it could have theoretically been different, right? Do you remember at the trial of Jesus before Pilate and how Pilate seems tortured in his conscience? I know this man is innocent. I've declared him not guilty. Yet because of political pressure from the Jews, I I am here forced to to send him to death. Would not Pilate perhaps have said, okay, I'll condemn him to death, but it will be a merciful death. It will be a Roman death. It will be a beheading instead of a crucifixion. Is that not possible that Pilate would say such a thing? But he did not, because Jesus knew that he would be crucified. By the way, this is the first mention in the Gospel of Matthew of the method of Jesus' death and that the Gentiles would have a part in it, because no Jewish leader would ever crucify a man. If they were going to execute somebody, they would do it by stoning. And when you take it together, what Jesus says of his coming fate in verses 18 and 19, the entire picture is of great suffering. He suffers from the disloyalty of his friends. He suffers from injustice. He suffers from deliberate insult. He suffers from physical pain, and he suffers from great humiliation and degradation. In the midst of all of that, you saw the last words of verse 19, didn't you? And the third day he will rise again. Now, you know, I spoke about all these things over which Jesus had no apparent control. He didn't have apparent control over him being betrayed. He didn't have apparent control about being condemned to death or delivered to the Gentiles or mocked and scourged or to be crucified. These were not things that he had control over. But I'll tell you what, he especially did not have control over whether or not he would be raised from the dead. Yet he confidently announced to his disciples that this would happen. See, I want you to notice something. When this was all over, and Jesus was risen from the dead, and the disciples had that amazing transformation, which I believe was a transformation for them, both spiritual and psychological. When they were just woken up, and they were utterly changed in their perspective, how utterly confident they were that Jesus was everything that he said he was because he predicted his sufferings and his glorification through resurrection so specifically that once they did remember it was an amazing transforming testimony to them now verse 20 right after this dramatic prediction of jesus's death torture mocking scourging betrayal and resurrection look what happens starting at verse 20 Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, What do you wish? 
And she said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left in your kingdom. Again, I've often told you that when I read the Bible, it's like a movie running in my head. And can you run this movie in your head? The mother of Zebedee's sons. Well, who were the sons of Zebedee? Matthew chapter 4, verse 21 tells us that the disciples James and John were the sons of Zebedee. So here you have the mother of James and John. By the way, one point about the mother of James and John. Apparently, she followed around the disciples a lot. Are you aware that there were more people who followed Jesus other than just the twelve? If you were to see Jesus from a distance walking on the road to Jerusalem, you wouldn't just see Jesus in the company of twelve guys. You you might see twelve guys around him most closely, listening to every word he said, but there was a larger group of people, including men, including women, including other people who were his followers in a larger sense. And, And keep your finger right here, but turn over to Matthew chapter 27, verse 56. This, of course, is after the death of Jesus. Look at verse 55, we'll actually start at. It says, And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were there looking on from afar. They they looked as Jesus was put in in his tomb. Among whom were, now notice this, go back to verse 55. These were many women who followed Jesus from Galilee. All the way back from Galilee, verse 56, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joses, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. In other words, she was part of this group of women that followed Jesus all the way from his Galilean ministry. So here she is, this woman, her sons are followers of Jesus. Let's say the boys are in their 20s. I don't know, we're just guessing, right? That would make the woman probably in her young 40s or something like that. And here she comes, it says in verse 20, we're back here in Matthew chapter 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. Is the movie running in your head? The woman comes and I picture James and John, you know, maybe a step behind her on either side. And they come to Jesus very humbly, right? And in a very sort of ceremonial way, she comes and this woman, this grown woman with grown adult sons, she comes and she very piously kneels down before Jesus. What a scene, right? How embarrassing for Jesus. It's like, lady, please stand up. Don't don't kneel down before me in such a way. But you can tell she's really, Jesus, we are coming before you so humbly, so, so, you know, lowly. And he said to her, what do you wish? Please, ma'am, get up. What, What can I do for you? And she said to him, grant that these two sons of mine may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your kingdom. Now, Jesus had just told the disciples a short while before with the rich young ruler thing that they would be rewarded by sitting on thrones 
judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Don't you think that's a pretty good reward for anybody who's a follower of Jesus? Guys, not only are you going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel, you're going to sit on thrones and do it. And what Peter and John instantly think about, not Peter and John, James and John, they instantly think, we want our thrones to be in the best place next to Jesus. Isn't that strange? They wanted prominent positions in the messianic administration of Jesus. Maybe they're thinking like this. Jesus, you're going up to Jerusalem to assume your glory, to take control of the state of Israel, to display your messianic muscle. Put us as number one and number two right there. You're so close to the king. You share in his prestige. You share in his power. So here you go. Jesus, make us number one and number two in your kingdom. Verse 22. Now again, I know it's not fair. But in the movie that runs in my head, Jesus rolls his eyes in a great big gesture right here. You know, oy vey, these guys are asking for this. Verse 22. But Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you ask. Maybe we should just stop right there. You do not know what you ask. Isn't this so often true of what we ask for from, from God? We don't know what we're asking for. Now, sometimes we don't know what we're asking for because we're just ignorant, right? I think we all understand that God knows more than we do. Is anybody confused on that point? I I think it's pretty clear, right? God sees things that we don't see. He understands things that we don't understand. And so sometimes we think that something is good for us or the best for us, and we really do. I mean, we've thought about the situation really hard, right? And we figured it out, and we know exactly what God should do, and we give him the instructions that he should follow, but we don't know what we should ask, right? Because we're ignorant. We don't see everything we can see. We don't understand everything we can understand. But God does. There's another reason why we don't know what we're asking for. And it's because our own fleshly desires get in the way. Don't you think that this was the problem with James and John? By the way, notice Jesus answered James and John here. Starting at verse 22. He he, he didn't answer the mom. Because mom was just being a messenger. Can you see James? Listen, we got to ask Jesus for the first and second place in his kingdom. How are we going to do it? Mom, can you ask him? It'll be a lot better coming from you than from us. How about it, mom? Well, I want my boys to succeed. Sure, I'll do it. You know, that kind of thing. Jesus doesn't even really answer her. You can see in verses 22 and 23, he's talking to James and John. So he says, you don't know what you're asking for. Sometimes We don't know what we're asking for because we're ignorant, but other times we're just in the flesh. We're just carnal. We're not spiritually minded enough. So Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, we are able. So he said to them, You will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, 
but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. How does Jesus answer them? First of all, guys, you don't know what you're talking about, but let me address this. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? By the way, this is very interesting. Jesus is putting forth two pictures of his coming suffering, right? In one way, his coming suffering is like a cup that he has to drink. You say, well, big deal. He has to drink a cup. What's so hard about drinking a cup? Well, he's drawing on an Old Testament image, right? The Old Testament image, repeated many times, especially in the prophets, has the idea that there is a cup of judgment in God's hand, and he makes his enemies drink it. That, that idea is listed several places in the Old Testament prophets. A cup of judgment in the hand of God, and as God's punishment, he makes his enemies drink it. And that's exactly the cup that Jesus asked would pass from him when he pay, prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? God, I don't want to drink the cup of your wrath. I don't want to be regarded as your enemy. I don't... If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. So, hey, James, John, are you able to drink that cup? That cup that that is appointed to the enemies of God? That cup of the judgment of God? And then the other image he uses is a baptism, right? Verse 22. And to be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with. And the one hand you say, well, Jesus, we already saw you get baptized by John, right? We were already baptized, but that's not what Jesus is speaking about, right? He's using baptism as a symbol. What does it mean to be baptized? It means to be overwhelmed in something. It means to be covered over with something. It means to be immersed in suffering. And Jesus wasn't just going to taste a little bit of suffering on the tip of his tongue. He was going to be immersed in suffering. He was going to be buried over by suffering. So it's not just a little drop from this cup that he has to drink. He has to be baptized, covered over, immersed, sunk down under the judgment of God that's going to come upon him on the cross. And what do they say? You saw their answer. We are able. Isn't that great? Don't you smile a little bit when that movie runs in in your head? When the disciples, James and John, say, yeah, we can do that. How true it was that Jesus said, you do not know what you ask. And these same guys, yeah, Jesus, the cup, sure. The baptism, yeah, bring it on. These men slept in Gethsemane. These men forsook the master when he was arrested. And one of them, to his credit, there was one disciple who witnessed the crucifixion, and that was the disciple John. One of these guys who asked, but James fled away from the scene of the crucifixion. Listen, I I will say that these men did not know how weak they were. And in verse 23, Jesus said something to him very heavy, right? And again, it would take a master actor to communicate the seriousness, the love, the passion that must have been in the face of Jesus as he said this, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with. 
Now, if they understood what Jesus was saying, which they did not, but if they would have understood it, can you imagine the chill that would have run down their spine? Can you imagine how the hair on the back of their neck would have come up at the, oh, you will be baptized. James and John had to be baptized in suffering, even as Jesus was. But I find it very interesting that their cups and their baptism were very different. What kind of suffering, what kind of trial, what kind of baptism did James have to endure? Do you know who the first martyr was among the apostles? It was this very same James. He was the first one. Look, let's face it. Peter gets delivered from prison, right? Good for Peter. James, he gets martyred. He's the first one of the disciples, of of the apostles, to lay down his life as a martyr. And then what's the other one? John? Well, John was the last of the apostles to die, right? John was the only apostle not to die through martyrdom. Oh, he was persecuted. And according to historical legends, they tried to martyr him, but he wouldn't die. He had the baptism of living a long, faithful life to Jesus Christ, being faithful to the very end. No, these were different kinds of baptisms, right? You see, James had to be ready to be the first to die among the disciples, and John had to be ready to live the longest Christian life and testimony among them. Both of them were different kinds of tests, but they each had them. I like what William Barclay says in his commentary on this point. He points out that they once found a Roman coin with a picture of an ox on the coin. And the ox was facing two things. There was an altar and there was a plow, right? Now, what would the ox do with the plow? Well, he would work. He would pull the plow, right? This is a life of hard work for the ox, the plow. What would the ox do with the altar? He would be killed, right? And sacrificed on the altar. So here's the idea. The Roman coin showed an ox facing a plow and an altar And the inscription said, ready for either. And that's exactly how we should be, right? Lord, if you want me to lay down my life in some immediate sense, I'll be ready for that. But if you want to live out my days in long and fruitful service to you, then I'll be ready for that as well. Now, that's all easy to understand. It's not easy to live, but it's easy to understand But then Jesus says something sort of mysterious at the end of verse 23. Did you catch that? He says, but to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give. Jesus, if that's not yours to give, then whose is it to give? He tells you right here in verse 23, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my father. Jesus here showed remarkable submission to his father. Jesus would not even claim the right to choose how his servants were rewarded, but he yielded that to his father. He didn't come to do his own will, but the will of the one who sent him. And by the way, in saying this, doesn't Jesus rebuke James and John? What were James and John so concerned? They were concerned about position, right? They were concerned about status. And what does Jesus say? He says, listen, 
I am so lowly that I'm not even going to choose the ranking of my servants. I leave that up to my Father in heaven. Jesus was showing them the kind of humility, the kind of submission that they themselves should have had. Verse 24. This is great too. But when the ten heard it, right? You know who the ten are, right? It's all the other disciples. Twelve minus two is ten. But when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. Now, why do you think they were greatly displeased? Do you think, now really, James and John, you shouldn't be so unspiritual. You should set your eyes on more spiritual goals. Don't worry about first. Jesus will take care of all of that. You, you just don't bother about this. Just, just, you know, get your eyes in a more spiritual. Is that what bothered them? No, you know what bothered them, right? They were offended that these guys got to ask first and they didn't think to do it. Ahead. They thought, that's it. Have mom ask. That's how you get this position. That's how you do it. They were jealous, mistakenly thinking that a unique honor had been just bestowed on James and John. Could you imagine James and John walking back from this and saying to the other ten, hey, you know what? Jesus says that we get to drink the same cup he gets to drink and be baptized with the same baptism he gets to be baptized with. Now, they thought that was some kind of honor. The others, there's no way the other disciples say, you get that? And they were so carnally minded, the jealousy and fear that they would lose out. This is what's dominating their minds. Again, verse 24. And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus made a very accurate observation. He said in verse 25, the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. You know what? That's just the way it is in this world, right? The, the way, the worldly mentality of leadership and being in charge is that means that you lord it over people. You act like you're their lord and you treat them like they're your slaves. You don't honor them. You don't partner with them. You don't bless them. Listen, you're their lord and you lord it over people. That's how it is in worldly concepts of leadership and power. That's how the Gentiles do it. But he says, it should be different among the people of God. Verse 26, yet it shall not be so among you. Their desire for position and status showed that they did not yet know the nature of Jesus in respect to leadership and power. When they thought about leadership, they thought about it like the Gentiles thought about it, not how Jesus thinks about it. When they thought about power, they thought it about the way the Gentiles thought about it, not the way that Jesus thought about it. Listen, they thought about it the way that Pontius Pilate thought about power, right? Power is the ability to make other people do what I want them to do. That's power. Where Jesus would say, no, power is the ability for me to serve people 
and to bring glory to God through that service. It is so easy for us to adopt a worldly perspective on leadership and power. Anybody who feels that they have this fixed in their life, oh yeah, this is no problem for me. I I have it all right. Anybody in leadership who feels that way, they need to constantly be on guard. Because it's the way we normally think unless the Spirit of God is constantly transforming our mind, constantly changing our attitude. And for those of you who think that you're not in a position of leadership, and you think, well, you know, if I was in leadership, I'd never be like that. Oh, you just wait, right? You just wait. Put you in a position of leadership and see how easy it is for you to adopt the thinking of the Gentiles instead the thinking of Jesus. And Jesus explains his thinking right here in verse 27. He says, whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. In the kingdom community, status and money and popularity, they're never the prerequisites for leadership. Humble service is the great prerequisite as shown by Jesus' own ministry. I'd like to comment that D.A. Carson makes at this point. He says that in the pagan world at this time, humility was considered to be more of a vice than a virtue. Humility in the pagan world at this time was something bad. Oh, he's so humble. And they would say that in a bad way. No, it wasn't thought of as a virtue. And in the words of D.A. Carson, they wouldn't think it even thinkable that a slave would be given leadership. But that's what Jesus says. If you want to become great in my kingdom, let him be your servant. Verse 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Real ministry is done for the benefit of the people that you minister to, not for the benefit of the minister. Many people are in the ministry for what they can receive from people instead of for what they can give. Now, when I say that, many people think immediately of money. And yeah, there are people in the ministry for that. They're in the ministry because they they want to receive a paying job or a good paying job or some kind of paying job from people. They're in it for what they can receive money-wise. But you know what? I don't find that to be so common. I find another phenomenon even more common. The people are in the ministry for what they can receive emotionally and psychologically from people. I think it's strange how the ministry seems to attract insecure people and people who want affirmation from the people that they minister to. I'll minister to you if you tell me that you like me and if you tell me how good and how spiritual I am. That will fulfill me. Listen, it's a sad thing. You shouldn't be in the ministry for what you can receive from people, whether it's financial or whether it's emotional. You should be in the ministry for what you can give them. Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve. Now, isn't that good news for you? Because you know what? We didn't serve him, right? 
We could not give anything to him. Well, he didn't come for me to get my service. He came to give me his service. Not that I had to do anything for him first, but that first he would show me his mercy. He came first to serve me, and I can only serve him or anybody else after I have received something from him. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The death of Jesus, that is the giving of his life, it purchased freedom for his people. The idea is that his people were in bondage as slaves, and he paid their price. That ancient Greek word that's translated ransom here, it's the most commonly used word for the purchase price for freeing slaves. It really has the idea that Jesus gave himself to be our ransom. Now, this statement of Jesus has actually given rise to a very old and very complicated theological question. I don't know if it's a question you've ever thought about, but it's all based on this verse. The question is this. To whom did Jesus pay the ransom? Now, one old Christian theologian named Origen, he said that it was the devil. Jesus paid the ransom to the devil because we were held captive by the devil. And so Jesus paid the ransom of his life and he set us free from the tyranny of the devil. But but other people like Gregory of Nyssa, they objected that this put the devil on the same level as God and that it allowed the devil to dictate terms to God. Gregory the Great said that Jesus was like a baited hook meant to catch Satan. And another theologian later, Peter the Lombard, said that the cross was like a mousetrap to catch the devil baited with the blood of Christ. I think all of that kind of thinking is strange, and it takes the simple picture Jesus gave too far. The simple picture that Jesus gave is that when you need to be set free by a ransom, you can't do it yourself, right? Somebody else has to come and pay the ransom. And Jesus' whole idea is they could not save themselves. I came to save them. They could not pay their own ransom. I came to pay it. No, no, no. But still, I want you to see that there's another idea here. Is that when Jesus uses this phrase, and to give his life a ransom for many, most scholars think that he's referring back to the great passage in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 53, where it talks about the many who are saved by the work of Jesus. Let me, Isaiah 53, 11, by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. And then Isaiah 53, 12, he was numbered with the transgressions and he bore the sin of many. Most scholars think that Jesus is making reference back to passages like this when he says that he gave his life a ransom for many, he's telling them that I'm the Isaiah 53 guy. But again, Jesus here trying to correct the worldly attitude of position and leadership and service reflected in the request of James and John that came by their mother. Now let's wrap up the chapter here, taking a look, starting at verse 29. Now, as they went out of Jericho, maybe we should just pause right there in verse 29. 
This means that Jesus is following the traditional route where he would go from the north of Galilee, right? Traveling south somewhat along the Jordan River or that general area. And then he would cut up inwards, uh, which would be westward towards Jerusalem, starting about at the city of Jericho. This is when you would begin your ascent. Jericho is low, and then you begin the ascent. And so Jesus is now beginning to climb the series of hills or low mountains that would take him from the Jordan Valley all the way up to Jerusalem. He's on his way to Jerusalem. Now, as they went out of Jericho, a great multitude followed him. And behold, two blind men sitting by the road. But maybe I should just mention the great multitude for a moment. Again, thousands of pilgrims are on their way to Jerusalem for the Passover. And where did many of these pilgrims come from? From Galilee. They knew Jesus. And so, hey, Jesus is going. Jesus, it'd be a big commotion, a big crowd following Jesus. As they went out of Jericho, a great multitude followed him. And behold, two blind men sitting by the road, when they heard that Jesus was passing by, cried out, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. Then the multitude warned them that they should be quiet. But they cried out all the more, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. Again, does the movie run in your head? Big crowd following Jesus. There's lots of noise. The people are happy, right? They're happy because they're going up to Jerusalem for Passover. And Passover was a celebration. And you know why else they're happy? They're happy because this is vacation for them. That's what feast time was. Festival time was for the Jewish people. It was vacation. They're not home in Galilee working their backs to the bone with work in the field or in the fishing work or whatever it was. This is vacation. It's a happy, loud, raucous crowd. They're on their way. And then all of a sudden, these two blind guys, they hear that Jesus is coming by. And what do they start doing? They can't see him, right? So wherever he is, I hope you can hear me. And they start crying out, have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. What does the crowd do? The multitude tells them, shut up. Quit bothering him. We're on our way to Jerusalem. And what do they do when the crowd tells them to shut up? They start screaming. Have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. Then they really, and you got to love these two blind guys. The more the crowd told them to shut up, the louder they got. They wanted Jesus. It doesn't matter who tells them to shut up. They wanted Jesus. And I think the beginning of verse 32 is remarkable. Because again, we have this whole scene of Jesus making his march towards Jerusalem. And can I say something? Jesus on his march towards Jerusalem, he was unstoppable. Was there anything that could get him from turning around and not going to Jerusalem? No way. He was going there. This was the will of his father. This is what he came to this earth to do. This was his destiny as he just announced it. He was going to Jerusalem and nothing could stop him except the request of two blind men. Verse 32, so Jesus stood still. What what would make him pause on his trip to Jerusalem? Two crazy blind men screaming out at the top of their lungs, have mercy on us, Lord, son of David. So Jesus stood still and called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? I think it's funny that the blind men didn't answer back. Well, isn't it obvious we're blind? No, they said, 
to him, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. So Jesus had compassion and touched their eyes, and immediately their eyes received sight, and they followed him. You have to love the question that Jesus asked. It's a wonderful, simple question that God has not stopped asking. Sometimes we go without because simply we don't tell God what we want. Sometimes our attitude like that is before God. God, isn't it obvious what I need? And what does God sometimes want us to say? Tell me anyway. Tell me anyway what you want. I want to hear from you. I just like hearing you talk. So they said, that we would receive our sight, and then immediately they followed him, once they were healed of the blindness. That was the great result. Not only were they healed, but they also followed the one who did great things for him, and they were part of this great, big, raucous crowd heading now from Jericho all the way to Jerusalem. What would they do along the way? Well, they would sing. Go to the Psalms, And look up in the later Psalms, 120s, 130s, the songs of ascents. What's an ascent? An ascent is a climb up, right? They would sing the songs of ascents when they were climbing up these roads. They would sing. They would sing. They would laugh. They would talk. It was a time of celebration, and that celebration is going to come to a head in the passage that we take a look at next time we're together, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. But notice, the crowd's laughing. The crowd's celebrating. They're having a fun time. This is vacation for them. But all the while, I'm sure you could see a seriousness in the eyes of Jesus. He knows what he's going to Jerusalem to do. And he's ready to do it. He's ready to lay down his life as a sacrifice. He's ready to drink the cup and to receive that baptism that he knew completely what it was about, even if the disciples did. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you still call upon us to share in your cup, to share in your baptism to the degree that we can, to the degree that we're able to. And Lord, we want to do that. But we want to do it free from the worldly conceptions of leadership and greatness and power that so often fill our hearts and our minds. Or Lord, maybe I'll just pray for myself that so often fills my heart and mind. I want to be delivered from that, Lord. I want to have the real attitude that sees that true greatness is not in being served, but in serving others. Work on this in me, Lord, and in all of us, to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.